Somebody has hidden my podium. Is this a joke or is this for real? <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go. Well, before I get going, let's just, uh, how about we say thank you to Brother Terry for being willing to make that welcome for us, that welcome sign for us. That was really nice of him. I don't know who convinced him to do that, to go out by the road and do that, but that was, that's really uh, a good spirit right there. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this great privilege that you would reveal yourself to us and invite us then to enter into your word to know you better. Meet us here this morning. We are hungry for you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting the book of Genesis, and uh, this is exciting. Uh, it's exciting always to me to enter into a new biblical book, but this time we're starting with the very first one. Don't feel bad if you haven't liked Genesis before. Uh, I realize I may be talking to some of you and you haven't really gotten into it. That's okay. There, there are reasons for that, and, and it may be that a lot of you are like, why do we have to study this? Hopefully that question will be answered in the coming weeks, and you will say, man, I know why God gave us the book of Genesis, and you'll be glad to have it. Let's start today by talking about the structure of the book. And let me just say before I do that that I am going to do my very best this morning not to take away from the words that have already been spoken and sung and prayed here today because we have been led uh, to God and uh, we have seen the Lord here among us today. Let this be just uh, an addition to that. So just briefly here, Genesis has a very simple structure to it, at least looking at a macro level, looking broadly over the, um, well, okay, wrong, wrong one. Uh, uh, somebody would uh, get my slide up there. The structure of Genesis is divided, there we go, between the, the first 11 chapters and the rest of the book, at least broadly speaking. So you have what might be called primeval history, where God calls a world into existence in the first 11 chapters. And then you have the rest of the book. It's patriarchal history. God calls a people into existence. So we're going to spend a lot more time, obviously, on the last half of this book, or the last, last section of this book. It's much more than half because that's where the, the book of Genesis spends its time. So, but right now, for the next few weeks, we're dealing with the, the primeval history, the very primitive, original history of the world. That's what we get into today. And uh, let me just say to you that Genesis as a whole, you may be thinking, well, Genesis is about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and those kind of people. Or Genesis is about crazy early stories. But Genesis as a whole is not about those things so much as Genesis is about God. And that's what we're going to learn as we study the book of Genesis is that God reveals himself to us. This is the purpose of Revelation, that we can know God. Imagine what it would be like if we didn't have Revelation if God had chosen not to reveal himself to us, we would be out like so many people in history have been, like people still today are, who, who uh, 
are walking around and they see nature and they see a lot of beautiful things, but it's like people who have a bunch of puzzle pieces, but they don't know how to put the puzzle pieces together. Revelation comes to us and says, this is God. And then we're able to make sense of the world that we're looking at. And that is uh, the beautiful thing we get to do right now, starting today, introduction to God as he introduces himself to us. Now, I need to say something about a challenging question before we get started. And I'm actually not going to say as much about this as I would like to say. And we may have a setting somewhere where we, uh, in a few weeks or a couple weeks where we come together and we can uh, dialogue about some of these things. So that's the question of science and history in Genesis. And I imagine right now that we have people in this room who represent different ends of the spectrum on how we should come at these things. And what I want to say to you uh, right, up for, right up front is that we need to let the Bible be the Bible. We need to let Genesis be Genesis. And we need to let the first few chapters of Genesis be what they are. And what is true about those texts, if we take them as they are, is they were never intended to be scientific texts. That's not what the first few ch chapters of Genesis are. And if you look at them uh, in that lens, uh, you can do that. But that's just not what they were intended to be. That's not the way the ancient literature that's compared, the, the other, other creation stories that we have, other or origin stories that we have from the, uh, from the world of antiquity, that's not the way they, they're, they're writing either. They just aren't asking the same questions. And for me, I come at this out of respect for the Bible. This is not for me trying to accommodate the Bible to science and make it fit. This is just out of, this is what I do with the whole Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, wherever. We say, let the Bible be the Bible. And the Bible initially, these first chapters of Genesis, were not given to us to say, well, this is strict science. Go make sure you can conform all your science to these chapters. So there's a lot more I could say about this. But what I want to emphasize up front to you is that you can be a Christian and hold different views on how Genesis relates to science. You can be a six-day creationist, a young earth creationist, and believe Genesis and believe the Bible and accept its authority. You can also believe in the old earth, believe the earth and the universe has been around a really long time and still believe the Bible. Genesis itself does not confine us to one interpretation or the other if you respect the text as it is given to us. It's a literary piece. It's, it will see today it's highly arranged, it's poetic, and it's meant to say something about who God is, not about the mechanisms of how he did it, right? And that's, that's what the text is given to us for. So don't, whether you're on the left or the right here, don't condemn your brothers or sisters. There's room for freedom here. There's room to explore these questions. And if you want to explore them more, we can do that. I'd be happy to meet with you to explore these questions further. But for now, I just want to say that's not Genesis. That's not the point of Genesis to give us uh, detailed scientific mechanisms. And we should know this, actually. We've just gotten confused to, and we've gotten used to asking our questions and, and, and sort of, Forcing our questions onto the text when those questions were not the questions the original audience was asking. Just think about it. Dwell with it. I can see some looks out there. Maybe you're, you're processing this, and that's okay. Look, what I want to tell you is the Bible's true. The Bible's true. We accept its authority. Nobody's going to knock on the Bible in here. Uh, we are completely under submission of the Bible, but there are ways uh, to interpret the Bible where uh, people come to different conclusions about certain things. Don't hang your faith on a particular view of Genesis 
these early chapters of Genesis. And I want to tell you why, my, why I'm concerned to say this up front to you. Because I have talked to young people, and this is increasingly happening today, where young people are going to college and they're losing their faith. They're going and they, they run up against what seems to be overwhelming scientific evidence. We can debate the scientific evidence, okay? I'm not taking a position on that here. I'm just saying they run into what they think is overwhelming scientific evidence that the earth is really old. But they've been told in church that the whole Christian faith hangs on the earth being young. And they feel like they've got to make this choice, this all-or-nothing choice. Either they accept this incredible, overwhelming evidence as they see it, or they accept the Bible. And a lot of them say, okay, I'm done with the Bible. I had somebody a few years ago reach out to me, a young man who was a Christian but was becoming not one. <laughs> uh, he was moving towards deism. And I, I want to read to you just briefly what he, what he, some of what he shared with me. We ended up having a long email exchange. He was talking about how he's trying to share with his atheist friends some of his beliefs. He said, I try to share with my, my Christian friends who tell me all I need is the Bible and faith. That dramatically affects what I think of God and his people, who to me appear to be blind to anything that proves the Bible's divinity, and that this God is even the God of the Bible. He's not wording this real well, and I'm not going to take the time to try to exegete this letter. Just, just stay with it. Uh, I find my only intellectual curiosity entertained by my atheist friends, and they don't believe in anything supernatural. I am numb to the idea of Christianity because I feel like I'm alone. I'm told that the Bible is enough if I just read it. But to me, I read with skepticism. I have to go from legitimate sources of science to Christian science. That appears absurd to me. And as you can tell by my rambling, I have been lost for months and don't know what exactly I'm looking for, except for truth and what I should feel and the implications of it if it is true. And you know what I wrote this guy back? And said, I wrote him back and I said, relax, man. <laughs> In so many words, I said, don't hang your faith on a particular understanding of the first chapters of Genesis. I told him, you can, you can have different views of that. And many, many Christians do. Many of the most devout Christians you would know, uh, uh, that we could know today, do not hold to a strictly literal reading of the first uh, creation story. And that's okay, you can be a Christian and do that. And so we're not going to get caught up in those kind of questions. People, we're not going to present a view that's, that's causing people to, to lose their faith. A lot of young people are losing their faith. Like I said, you can believe that, but you can also believe the other side. And you can be a Christian, we can disagree with that. We're not focusing on that because that's not what Genesis is focusing on. These chapters are not focusing on telling us this is what, what a, uh, a scientific view of the world is supposed to be. Now make all science match up with this. That's just not what the early chapters of Genesis are doing. I know I'm repeating myself, but this is a... This is kind of heavy to, to process, and we need to take some time with it. This is a story about God, about who God is, about his mighty power and authority, about how he's the one and no one else is, about how grateful we should be for what he has done, and we don't need to get lost in the details. All right. Now, you can beat me up afterwards if you want to, but uh, that, that's my story for now. Let's get into to Genesis itself. I, hope, itself, and I hope you'll see the beauty of what we're talking about. Every society has tried to live with, with or has, has found themselves living with stories of origins. And this is true in antiquity, and it's still true today, actually. In that society, uh, in, in the ancient society that would have uh, been around at the time of Genesis, their story was pagan gods created the world. Pagan deities run the world. And they create the world by sometimes... Uh, 
colluding together with how to make it, sometimes in great conflict with each other about how the, the world is, is formed. For example, one famous uh, Babylonian text called Enuma Elish, there's a battle between these gods. There's the great goddess Tiamat, who's like the goddess who represents the, the oceans. And Marduk, or Marduk, I'm not sure how you say his name, if you heard of him. Uh, Marduk fights Tiamat, long story short here. He gets into a fight with her. He kills her, and that's how he creates the world. I'm going to have to skip some things here. Uh, this is the Enuma Elish. Marduk split Tiamat like a shellfish into two parts. Half of her he set up and sealed in the sky, pulled down the bar, and posted guards. And then he created man. This is what it says about human beings. They shall be charged with the service of the gods so that the gods can take it easy. <laughs> That'll be more relevant next week, or two weeks from now, we're going to talk about the creation of human beings. Right now, I just want you to see that. That's one way they got it done. We could look at other stories, other creation stories, ancient stories, that, that said the gods battled with each other or the gods worked things out together. Sometimes it talks about the gods coming into existence themselves. Uh, but this is how they did it. They, you know, he, he separated things. Genesis talks about waters being separated, light and darkness being separated. This God separated things by killing another God, splitting their body, and that's where you get the world we have. But that's not what our story is like, is it? I want to pause before we get into Genesis and tell you that we do have origin stories floating around our world today. And we need to be aware of them because they are poison. It's football season, so I'll use Nick Saban's line. They're rat poison to the Christian faith. These things are seriously detrimental to our faith. For example, one of the primary stories we're dealing with today is what goes by the label of materialism. Now, now there are different ways people use materialism. Here we're talking about it in like an origin sense, a scientific sense. And that is the idea that all that is is matter. And that everything that, that's, that's here is just matter. Matter is what has always been. Matter is what will always be, if there is anything at all. And the basic idea of that story is that you are an accident. Now, this is really hard to believe. <laughs> there were explosions somewhere way back, and things started happening, and billions of years passed, and somehow life came about, little life forms, big life forms. Somehow consciousness descended upon us. And here we are today. And eventually, all that we know and love, because love's an accident, joy's an accident, relationships are accidents. It all, I mean, they, at the core, that's what they are. And all of that's going to just go out like a candle eventually and uh, disappear because we're just matter, and matter is all that there is. Now, we have to ask hard questions about that worldview. And this is not the place to go into great detail about this right now, but... but I just want to pause because people hear these things and they think that that's smart. And you go to college and you think that smart people are the ones who believe that kind of thing. And we just have to ask hard questions like, where do we get a moral universe from if that's the story? How, how does morality come to rest upon people who are just accidents? A couple of weeks ago, tragically, uh, Sydney's dog killed Sydney's rabbit. Yeah. More tragic for some in the family than others, because um, some of us didn't like that rabbit very much. Uh, I'm just speaking for myself, but and still, I was so sad for Sydney. And uh, <laughs> um, sorry, I think people are just thinking worse and worse of me as the sermon goes on. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, he was a little bit of a nuisance. Anyway, uh, it was tragic. And Sydney had a hard time not blaming her dog. And I had to talk Sydney through this and, and, and explain to her how your dog's acting on instinct. That's what dogs do. And it's okay. My dog killed my rabbit when I was a kid. It happens. But now let's suppose, now, now that I've accidentally stepped into this, this is going to sound bad, but let's suppose that I had actually killed Sydney's rabbit. And she had come home, and, and uh, I had to confess that I had killed the rabbit. That's a totally different story, isn't it? Why? Because I have some kind of responsibility to this world of morality. But that dog doesn't. The dog does not have a spiritual component to it. Not in that sense. Not a, not a free choosing spiritual component to it. It has brain chemicals. It has things firing in its brain. It has instinct that moves it. And therefore, it's not morally accountable. We don't say, well, we gotta, we're going to send that dog to prison. <laughs> yeah. It's a good dog. It just did what dogs do, right? But I'm responsible because I'm made in the image of God. And this moral universe, it, it, it compels me. It comes upon me. And you see, you have to ask, how does that happen if we just material? If we just evolve it, all there are is neurons and dendrons and whatever else is in my head. You know, Steve could tell you. Whatever these things are firing in my brain. What, how does moral responsibility attached to something like that in an accidental, meaningless world. And yet people are living all the time. Even the atheists and people who accept materialism, they're living with an acceptance of this moral universe. And what they have to do is, as Francis Schaeffer said a long time ago, they have to, to borrow from, they're living on the lower story of the universe, they have to borrow from the upper story in order to, to live. And this is what atheists do all the time. They borrow from the theistic universe meaning and values, even though they can't actually logically sustain them. And they pull those down in order to make their lives worthwhile and meaningful. There was a man, I read this in a book one time, uh, a philosopher, kind of philosopher guy, was talking to another guy, hitchhiking actually, named Os Guinness, if you've heard of him. And he, he was explaining to an atheist how his views worked out. You know, that, so actually love doesn't exist on your view. You're just chemicals and you're just material firing, right? Love and meaning and all these things. And this guy actually followed it through to the end. He followed the logic through and said yes. And as he was doing so, his wife burst out in tears. Because she realized if that's true, this world is so meaningless. But that guy is making meaning out of his world by borrowing from the upper story. Okay, That's, that's uh, something we should talk about at length sometime. Because this world is God's world, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not possible to live in it in a meaningful way without God. But materialism says yes. The other story we encounter today is the story of uh, what we might call New Ageism or spiritualism. That one's floating around a lot today in postmodernism because modernism basically, a few, few decades back, tried to kick God out and say God is dead. Postmodernism gave a great compliment to theism and to the spiritual world by basically saying, no, we can't kick it out. We've got to bring it back in. But what they've refused to do is bring in uh, Orthodox Christianity. It's now everything goes, everything you believe spiritually goes. And what you'll hear is things like uh, it's pantheism, really. The universe is God, the world is God. Right? And all kinds of spirits inhabit it, and, and, uh, and this, this, you can believe anything, but you just can't say your view is, is right, <laughs> and that there's one God who might call you to account. 
And you'll hear things like people accepting, I'm sorry, I got a little bit sidetracked there. The, the pantheism idea is that the world is God. And now you'll see this on your TVs. And you pay attention to it because I see this a lot. People say things like uh, on the television show, something's happening. They're wanting to believe in something spiritual. And they'll say, it's like the universe wanted it to happen. Well, thanks, universe. You see what they're doing? They're personalizing the universe because they've gotten rid of a personal God. And yet they're trying. This is, this is the, the grapple of human beings who have said, we're going to live in a world without God, and yet they've found that the human being himself, herself, needs God in order to live. And our lives are empty apart from God. And so they start personalizing impersonal things because they can't bring in the true God. Oh, the universe is, is behind us on this. The universe has arrangements. And they start giving all this intelligence and will to the universe. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, people whose minds have been given over into idolatry and into sin, and they don't think clearly anymore. This is, what, this is just what we're talking about. They did not like to retain the knowledge of God in their minds, and so God gave them over. Gave them over to foolish thinking, to sinful thinking. All right, that's, that's a lot of background, but I want you to, it's very important because we're getting an origins story today. And it's not, we're not going to take a long time going through the details, so, so don't worry. This is, this is a lot of repetitive kind of stuff in Genesis chapter 1. Beautiful, but repetitive. And the, the basic idea I want you to know is that uh, this is not silly cliches in Genesis chapter 1. This is an alternative way of understanding reality. And there are always competitors to understanding reality. Whether it's pagan gods or materialism or some kind of silly idea that the world now is God, there are always competitors. And, and Genesis 1 sets our minds, brilliantly sets our minds thinking clearly about what reality is. And this is how we understand the world. And let me say to you that this is good news. This is good news about God. God has chosen to reveal himself. And we're going to see how this is good. And I want to start at the end here in chapter 2. This is day 7. But I wanted to start here to, to get the basic, I think the most important point really of all this text. At the end of all his work of creation, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Why did God rest? Did God get worn out? Does the all-powerful God get worn out? Well, here's what one of the leading Genesis scholars today has contended here, and I think he may be right. That what we have here is temple language. That's where deities rested, is in temples. And in antiquity, there would be these seven-day uh, temple inaugurations that they would have. And if you look in Scripture, you'll see connections between the whole world and the temple. You'll see in the temple, uh, uh, in, in the temple itself, there are, are things woven into it, built into it, that are representing uh, the cosmos itself. And what it looks like is happening is that the world has been made as God's temple. And then God rests in his temple. You know what that means? 
It means that this whole beautiful thing he's done is for him. And that he is to be worshipped in this creation. It means that he chooses to be present here. It means that God has, a, has tied himself to our world as his place of worship and so when we walk around outside in the world, we're not walking on natural land. We're not using natural resources. We're walking on sacred land. And we're using sacred resources. We eat food. We're eating sacred food. That's why we say a blessing. That's why we say thanks. Because this is God's world. It's his temple. And he will be worshipped here one way or the other, by the human beings he has placed here. God, this, this is the, the premise that makes the rest of the Bible understandable. God cares about this world. And he, in grace, decides to step forward into it. He makes it good, he makes it beautiful, but he doesn't just wind it up and send it out of its way. He says, I will live there, and I will be worshipped there. This is the God that Genesis 1 presents to us. It's the holy God taking up his residence in the temple. Now, what you have in Genesis, these six, first six days of Genesis, is... Uh, Parallels. The first three days parallel the last three days. And like I said, it's, it's a literary and poetic piece. And they're, they're, it's like you get an outline in the first three days, and you get the, the substance in the, the next three days. You get the foundation laid in the first three days. You get building on it in the next three days. And that's what we'll see here. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice these terms I've got bolded, because you'll see, following out to the text then, this little introduction You'll encounter these ideas again as we move, move through the text. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, there was not a Trinitarian idea, by the way, back then. The Spirit of God, the breath of God was the idea. Now, looking back on it, after Christian theology comes into play, we can see uh, this as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But that's not what they were originally thinking in Genesis 1 with the original audience. This was just the breath of God, the breath of God that could wipe out trees if it wanted to, the breath of God that could move to create things. Something's about to happen here with the creation. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. There's something there in verse 2. It's not finished, right? It's chaotic. The, the waters are there. It's formless. It's void. But God is hovering over it. Which means something good's about to happen. But right now there's darkness and there's disorder. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Man, the song got me today. I don't know if I've thought much about it until we were singing it today. When it said... Darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice. This is what God's always doing. Darkness is always hiding from God in one way or another. And from the very beginning, that's been so. The darkness trembled at his voice when he said, let there be light. 
And God saw that the light was good. You're going to see this term good appear over and over again. And really, it might be better translated something like beautiful or delightful. God saw that the light was beautiful. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now here, look at the parallel. Day one parallels day four. So then we're going to, that was the outline. Now we fill in the outline. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them help us out with the seasons, the years, the days. Uh, go down to verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. The billions upon billions upon billions of stars. We just say, and the stars. <laughs> and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning. That was the fourth day. Day one parallels day four. The Jesus Storybook Bible I love. He talks, she talks about creation, the one who writes it, and says, These things God created, they were lovely because he loved them. I just put these pictures up here because there's not, I don't know if there's a lot more for me to say other than just thank you, God. And Steve was reading the passage today, we were watching that video. The beauty and goodness of God just comes through powerfully. And it's for us just to say thank you. Day two, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. So he set, these first three days, he's separating, right? So there's waters the way they thought. If there are waters that come down from heaven, there must be waters above the heavens. And there must be something separating. So this is the way they're thinking about it. So let there be an expanse that separates the waters from the waters. There's waters down here, waters up there. And so God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And it was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Day two parallels day five. And so God made the waters and the heavens. He said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And they were lovely because he loved them. Those are sea creatures. <laughs> Thank you, God. Day three, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Because the dry land earth... The waters, the oceans, the seas, God sees that it's good. Then he said, let's have vegetation. Let's have plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Now that's kind of important because imagine if they didn't bear fruit according to their kind. Imagine if you planted a tree and you never knew which kind of fruit was going to come out. <laughs> oh, this year I got peaches. That's great. Oh, no, next year's nectarines. See, this is, this is allowing human life to go. It's bringing order to human life. That's what God did so that we can live with this order. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was beautiful. There was evening and there was morning. That's day three. And they were lovely because he loved them. 
Those are peach trees, actually, uh, beside the flower. Day three parallels day six. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock. So he, he separates the water so that there's an earth. Now he brings forth creatures. Livestock and creeping things. Sometimes we'd rather not have some of the creeping things uh, around. And beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And they were lovely because he loved them. Thank you, God. I'm going to skip this for now. This is then we get to the part where we're made, <laughs> human beings, as the pinnacle of creation. And that's, that's for two weeks from now. We're going to talk more about that in connection with chapter 2. So we're going to go past that. And I wanted to just go to chapter 2 and share one verse with you from there. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree, notice what it says, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Do you understand that when you see beautiful things, God did that for you? When you eat good food, God did that for you? Don't feel bad about it. I mean, if you need to get it under control, get it under control. But sit down and thank God for your food. God caused it to spring up from the ground because he is for you. And this is good news. Aren't you thankful that there are birds in the sky? I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older. I, I grew up where everybody killed everything because we were hunters. And uh, I walked around with my BB gun shooting God's wonderful creation. And, and uh, uh, not intending that as an offense to anybody who, who's had to kill things at certain times. But uh, um, as I get older, I just love beautiful birds. I can't believe I took my BB gun and shot them down out of trees. I really can't. Uh, uh, God gifted us with these birds and with these trees and with fruit and vegetables because God is for us. When God creates, if you noticed, let's just, let's just close here by, by talking about who God is. You know. When He creates, he shows that he is all-powerful. He just speaks. He doesn't have to have a fight with another God. He doesn't have to go ask somebody for permission. He doesn't have to say, will you work with me on this? I'm forming a team. He just says, let there be. And there is. And that is why we say, we think we'll just worship. <laughs> we think it'd be appropriate if we bowed down sometimes. Because that's what our God does. He speaks and things exist. He's an all-powerful God. He's a present God. He didn't just set it in motion and move away. He said, this will be my temple and I will be worshipped here. He has bound himself to humanity, but he's done it. And this is the last thing we'll say about God. God is good. And this world is his delight. He didn't primarily set it up to be a test for you. 
to see if you would pass, and maybe one day he'll start to bless you. God blessed you from the start. And he delighted in it. He said, this is beautiful. And he wants us to see that it's beautiful. And he wants us to worship him as we enjoy it. Not abusing it, not living in self-indulgence. But, but that's not what Adam and Eve were doing either. They were called into a world to be blessed by God. That's what we're called into as well. People talk about it, and I'm not dealing with it here. I know there's so much evil in the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we talk about sin entering the world. People talk about the problem of evil, the mystery of evil. I rarely hear, rarely hear people talking about the mystery of goodness. Explain to me why there are strawberries in the world, please. Why are there peaches in the world? Why are there beautiful things all around us? Sunlight. We get depressed if we don't have sunlight, but we walk out into it and it starts to lift our spirits. It's because God is for us. We're surrounded by his goodness. I want to read to you these words from the song, This is My Father's World. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings. And round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. And the line I don't have on my page here, but I think I can quote it. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, will be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. And that is what Genesis 1 is getting us ready for. Thank, thanks be to God. Thank you.